On the corner of 6th and Market Streets is a strange historic monument. There's a frame that might support a door, but there is no door. Brick walls that don't actually form complete walls. There's outdoor fireplaces with flat screen TVs, yet there's no roof to prevent the fire from going out or to prevent the TVs from getting wet. It could be the entrance to the Liberty Bell Center, a newer home for the infamous bell that opened in 2003. Philadelphians have told me they've passed this floating doorway without a clue about its significance. That's not unusual, rushing to work, racing to catch a train, or grabbing a drink with friends. For some, Independence National Park, the home of Independence Hall, the National Constitution Center, a freestanding framework of Ben Franklin's house, and so much more, really just blends into the background. To understand this monument, we must step back in time to the 1760s, when Mary Masters, widow of successful Philadelphia merchant and former mayor, William Masters, left their home close to the docks along the Delaware River and bought a parcel of land in what was known as the Middle Ward. Now remember, Philadelphia was much smaller in the 1700s, although those locations were only a few blocks from one another. In a port city moving away from the river, well, it was like moving across town. A single woman bought land, built her own house. That's a very modern prospect during a time when women had so few rights. But there were people with even less rights than a rich, former mayor's widow. Enslaved people. According to multiple early American historians, Mary Masters' late husband, William Masters, was not only a slave owner, but he was one of the largest slave owners in Philadelphia. When he died in 1761, his estate listed over 30 enslaved persons, and it was likely their hands built the house for Mary Masters at the corner of 6th and Market Streets. Mary Masters didn't live there long. Just a few years after it was built, she gave the three-story house to her daughter as a wedding present. Her son-in-law was the grandson of William Penn. Insurance records from the Philadelphia Contributorship in 1773 describe this house in detail. They mention every pillar and parlor. There was dark mahogany on the walls, ornamental molding on the windows. It was a large, imposing structure. The perfect spot for General William Howe when the British occupied Philadelphia in 1777. An even better fit for General Benedict Arnold when he moved there a year later. The house at 6th and Market Streets had a number of different residents over the next 50-plus years, until it was remodeled and turned into shops in the 1830s. Eventually, the structure was torn down in 1951 when the city began construction on Independence Mall. But it's the residents who lived there for about 10 years, beginning in November 1790, that I want to focus on today. They're the reason for the floating doorway on the corner before you enter the Liberty Bell Center. George and Martha Washington and a young enslaved woman named Ona Marie Judge, better known as Oni, who escaped the Washingtons in 1796. This is the story of Oni Judge, and in telling Oni's story, we have to tell the role George Washington played in Oni's life, because besides being a general, a president, a farmer, a fourth-generation American, George was a slave owner until his death and never stopped trying to recapture the young woman who risked her life for her freedom. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this week's Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly.
Oni Judge was born into slavery. She was at least the second generation of women in her family born into slavery. But they didn't begin this life of servitude and captivity in the household of George Washington. Oni's mother, Betty, was born in the late 1730s at the Chestnut Grove Plantation in Virginia. Betty was among close to 300 other enslaved people owned by a man named Daniel Custis, Martha Washington's first husband. Martha was just 18 years old when she married Daniel, and Betty soon became what was described as a favorite servant of Martha's. Everything I've read about Betty, whether during her time at the Custis or Washington households, she was a talented seamstress. Now, she wasn't just mending clothes and stitching hems. She could make clothes. She could make lace. She could dye fabric. And she was ever at Martha's side. She was sometimes invited to sit in on sewing circles in Martha's parlor. Martha was about seven or eight years older than Betty, so it's possible she served Martha as a personal attendant from the time she was only about 11 years old. That makes sense the more we learn about her daughter Oni, who also began tending Martha when she was just 10. Regardless of her talent, though, Betty was enslaved. She had no opportunity to make money for her services or create an independent life for herself or her children, one that wasn't rooted in being owned by another human being. By the time Martha was 26, she was a widow, and according to Donald W. Reynolds Museum and Education Center, Martha Custis was the wealthiest widow in the state of Virginia. During her marriage to Daniel Custis, she lost two of their four children before they turned five, and soon thereafter lost her husband. Custis died without a will, so as a result of that, Martha inherited a dower, or one-third of her husband's estate. One-third of his 17,000 acres, one-third of his wealth, one-third of all property, which included the roughly 300 enslaved people. Oni Judge's mother, Betty, was among the property that Martha inherited. Within two years, Martha married again. Now here's where George Washington enters our story. Martha moved from her late husband's Virginian plantation to Washington's home at Mount Vernon. With her were about 80 slaves. Close to 600 men, women, and children were enslaved at Mount Vernon during the plantation's operation. There are numerous reports of Washington's shifting perspective on slavery after the Revolutionary War. But within his lifetime, he relied heavily on the people he enslaved to work his five farms and manage the households and personal needs at Mount Vernon. Historians of Mount Vernon believe his relationship with his valet, William Lee, had an impact on Washington's changing views. William was by Washington's side for over 20 years, including the years during the Revolutionary War. Now, now he was much more than a valet, just managing the general's wardrobe. He managed Washington's papers, he ran errands, he delivered letters. Some of those letters may have been highly confidential, so think about the trust Washington had in William Lee. Some of you might be saying, hey, I heard William Lee was freed when Washington died, and so were his other slaves. That's not exactly true. And this was in 1799, 18 years after the end of the Revolutionary War. Washington may have had a crisis of conscience later in life about the people he enslaved, but he did nothing about it before his death. In fact, you'll hear a little later in this episode, Washington spent almost 10 years actively circumventing a law in Pennsylvania that would have freed some of the people he enslaved. Mount Vernon was about 8,000 acres, and one farm was miles apart from another. Many enslaved families were separated on the farm, 
A man worked and lived at Muddy Hole Farm, while his wife and children may have lived and worked at Dog Run Farm, which was miles away. And when I say wife, enslaved persons were denied the right to legally marry, so it was a wife and husband in name only. Husbands who lived apart from their families may have been allowed to visit them on occasional Sundays or perhaps on holidays, and that's about it. Washington talked about his treatment of slaves as positive. He tried not to separate families, which sounds contradictory to what I just told you, but in this context, he meant not selling family members. So at least they were all still somewhere at Mount Vernon. We don't know this, but that could have been a factor in Martha Washington's decision to bring Betty and her young son Austin with her among the more than 80 enslaved persons she brought to Mount Vernon when she married George Washington. In her book, They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South, author Stephanie Jones Rogers discussed the misconception women were simply going along with their husbands regarding slavery. A common belief in the mid to late 1800s was that women weren't aware of the violence and degradation imposed on enslaved people. Wives became accustomed to the support and assistance they received. But they didn't know about overseers and beatings. They were far removed from the deplorable living conditions and the heartbreak of having your child ripped from your arms, never knowing where they wound up, if they lived or died. This side of slavery was too harsh for women. And that shit simply isn't true. Not only were many women in the 17 and 1800s very much aware of what enslaved people endured, some ordered the punishments. Women in circumstances like Martha Washington were actually common. A woman inheriting money and property from a previous marriage, bringing that property into her second marriage or even her third marriage, and often that property included enslaved people. Some women managed not only their household staff, but dictated how the overseers were to treat enslaved people on their properties. They made decisions about who was bought, who was sold, and who was abused. In Jones Rogers' book, I learned about a wife's property rights, something I wouldn't have expected granted to women in the 17 and early 1800s. Jones Rogers wrote, It was common for married women to sue their husband's creditors when these individuals seized enslaved people who rightfully belonged to them in order to pay their husband's debts. There were stories of fathers who went out of their way to gift enslaved people to their daughters and then get legal documents almost like a, a prenuptial agreement that their husbands had no right to their human property. George Washington had little rights to Martha's property from her late husband, and she only claimed it while she lived. Any property Martha inherited from her first husband and brought with her to her second marriage in 1759 upon her death would have gone to any male heirs from her marriage to Daniel Custis, sons or even grandsons. From what I've read, historians believe Martha accepted slavery without issue, without regret, or any of those second thoughts that George Washington had after the Revolutionary War. As the head of the house, she regularly managed the activities of enslaved people, whether they were cooks, butlers, waiters, other servants, tailors, and spinners like Oni's mother, Betty. Oni Judge's mother worked in the spinning house at Mount Vernon. She was about 20 years old when Martha moved to Washington's plantations, and her son Austin, Oni's brother, was just a baby at the time. It's believed Betty gave birth to her daughter, Ona Marie Judge, around 1774, 14 years after arriving at Mount Vernon. And although Oni was born at Washington's plantation, because she was the child of a woman enslaved by Martha Washington's first husband, Oni was considered property of his estate. 
Oni lived with her mother in a building called The Quarters. This was a large building near the plantation's blacksmith forge at Mount Vernon, and it was reserved for enslaved people who worked in Washington's mansion. According to author Erica Armstrong Dunbar in her book Never Caught, the Washington's relentless pursuit of their runaway slave Ona Judge, over 60 slaves lived in that one building. Most of the adults slept on bunks that were covered with straw, but there were so many people there was little room for the children who also occupied the quarters. They slept on the floor in this crowded two-story building. Oni spent most of her childhood learning how to sew and spin thread from her mother. When she was 10 years old, Oni Judge began working in the main house on Mansion House Farm, serving Martha Washington as her personal assistant, just as her mother had done years earlier. But now Martha was the wife of the first president of the United States, a woman whose standing and power only increased. Martha was also a woman who believed in the institution of slavery. After the Revolutionary War, the issue of slavery became more complex for the Washingtons. Once Washington was president, his wife and his household moved to New York and then eventually Pennsylvania, settling in Philadelphia. These were states that already had or were considering banning slavery. As Dunbar wrote in Never Caught, quote, At no moment did Martha ever consider living a life without her slaves in the North. This made it even more important that she and George choose with great care the slaves who would travel with them from Mount Vernon. They wanted dutiful slaves who listened without argument, the ones who were seen as loyal and therefore less likely to escape. There was another factor at play in Washington's household, colorism. Many of my research sources indicated the enslaved members of Washington's household were light-skinned. Washington preferred to place slaves with fairer skin in household positions. One of the few people from Washington's household who traveled with him throughout this time as general and commander-in-chief of the Continental Army was his valet, William Lee, and William also had fair skin. It's part of the reason Betty and years later Oni were members of Martha Washington's household staff. We've talked about Oni's mother, Betty, so let's take a minute and talk about her father a British tailor named Andrew Judge. He was an indentured servant to George Washington from around 1772 through 1784, although research sources differed on whether he was indentured that entire time or perhaps he completed his servitude and then just chose to remain at Mount Vernon. We don't know the nature of Betty's relationship with Andrew Judge. In her book, Never Caught, Erica Armstrong Dunbar discussed the dynamics that could have been present between Betty and Andrew. It is possible it was a loving, consensual relationship. It may not have been a romantic partnership, but maybe it was one that Betty thought could eventually benefit her and her children in their quest for freedom. It's also possible Betty became pregnant as a result of assault. As Martha Washington's personal attendant, Oni had a wardrobe superior to her peers. Any of the enslaved people working in Washington's mansion house were given better clothing, especially Washington's direct staff like William Lee, his drivers, his coachmen, as they were an extension of Washington. The same is true for Martha's staff. When Oni Judge was 16, she left her family and moved with the Washingtons to New York City, which was the temporary home of the United States government in 1789. They didn't stay in New York very long. 
In November 1790, Oni and her older brother Austin and seven other enslaved members of Washington's household moved with George and Martha into the master's penthouse. It was also called the Morris House in a nod to its latest owner, Robert Morris, in 1790. In his 2002 article, The President's House, Rediscovery of a Lost Landmark, Edward Lawler uncovers so much about George Washington's home in Philadelphia. For a time, there was a debate among historians about whether the master's penthouse at 6th and Market was really the house where Washington lived when he was in Philadelphia. The city had built a grander, much more ostentatious house at another location in Philly for the president. With some interior remodeling, Washington chose the home that was just a few hundred yards from Independence Hall. The remains of the president's house were demolished in 1951 to create Independence Mall. That's the beautiful green landscape across from Independence Hall. Prior to that, the master's penthouse went through significant interior changes in the 1800s to make it suitable for commercial use. But it was the demolition in the 50s that really eradicated any of the above ground remains. There was no archaeological study done before the building was torn down. It really was the excavation done in the early 2000s for the new Liberty Bell Center that uncovered what once stood on that site. Centuries of debris from as far back as the 1800s, then digging deeper and farther along 6th Street through layers of what I can only imagine was built up over a few hundred years in Philly, the team discovered more walls and deeper foundations that went back to the 1700s, Those were the foundations of a house built in the 1760s. According to the National Park Service, in 2007, archaeologists uncovered not only the original foundation walls, but stones from a bow window with curved walls that was part of the remodeling George Washington had requested. This was believed to be the inspiration for oval rooms that were later built in the White House. They also found remains of a kitchen and a wash house with a root cellar and a hallway that ran underground connecting the kitchen with the rest of the house. Now, these spaces were not on the original plans. These were also very likely done before George Washington moved in. These are the spaces where the nine enslaved members of Washington's Philadelphia household spent most of their time. And as we know, one of them was Oni Judge. Oni was one of only two women chosen by Martha to travel with the Washingtons to New York and then Philadelphia. The other was a seamstress named Moll, who was considerably older than Oni. These women were personal servants for Martha Washington. Oni was more likely Martha's personal attendant, while Moll helped care for Martha's grandchildren. And both fit the criteria the Washingtons had for which slaves they would take with them to their new home. Loyal, obedient, and light-skinned. New York and Philadelphia were entirely new worlds to Oni. They were big and crowded and loud. There was no wide open spaces like the plantation at Mount Vernon, and there were just so many people. She may have been shocked to see black and white people living alongside one another. And these were free black men and women of Philadelphia. According to the 1790 census, which was the first census in the United States, There were a little over 1.8 million people living in what was called the North. Now, these were any states north of Delaware. And 3% of that population were enslaved people. In the South, which was Maryland, Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia, 35% of that population were enslaved persons. The South had less people than the North, with a population of only 1.5 million. And those states enslaved a half million people. Of the 45,000 residents in Philadelphia in 1790, close to 2,000 were free black men and women. 
the population of the enslaved people in the city was just under 300, and nine of those were members of the president's household. Ten years before Washington moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania passed the Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery in March 1780. Now, I want to be clear, this act made some significant changes, but it did not end slavery in Pennsylvania, as some might think. So let's go through it. The act prohibited the importation of slaves into the state of Pennsylvania. Slaveholders had to annually register their enslaved persons with the state, and if they didn't, then they forfeited any enslaved people recognized as their property. And this is how the state kept track if anybody imported more enslaved people into Pennsylvania. Children born in Pennsylvania after the act was approved by Pennsylvania's Fifth Assembly were considered free regardless of their race. Children born to enslaved women weren't exactly free. These children were instead referred to as indentured servants, and they were required to work in the household where their mother was enslaved until they were 28 years old. They may have been called something else, but their lives weren't very different. And if you think about the life expectancy of people in the 1700s and into the early 1800s, 28 could have been much more than half their life. For some people, it was almost a lifetime. In 1788, there were a few key amendments added to the act, which included restricting slave owners from transporting pregnant enslaved women out of the state so that their children would be born in slavery. And non-residents who stayed in Pennsylvania could not move their slaves in and out of state every six months, which is what some non-residents in 1780 had done to get around the six-month rule that any visiting people who were enslaved and lived in Pennsylvania for six consecutive months would then be freed. That is exactly what President George Washington did while he lived in Philadelphia with the enslaved members of his household. In a letter dated April 12, 1791, Washington wrote to his secretary Tobias Lear at Mount Vernon specifically to address getting around the six-month non-resident amendment. This is a transcript taken directly from that letter, although I've changed one or two words that are not used today. In case it shall be found that any of my slaves may attempt their freedom at the expiration of six months, it is my wish and desire that you would send the whole, or such part of them as Mrs. Washington may not choose to keep, home. For although I do not think they would be benefited by the change, yet the idea of freedom may be too great a temptation for them to resist. At any rate, it might, if they conceived they had a right to it, make them insolent in a state of slavery. As all except Hercules and Paris are dour people, it behooves me to prevent the emancipation of them. Otherwise, I shall not only lose the use of them, but may have to pay for them. If upon taking good advice it is found expedient to send them back to Virginia, I wish to have it accomplished under pretext that may deceive both them and the public and none I think would so effectually do this as Mrs. Washington coming to Virginia next month. I request that these sentiments and this advice may be known to none but yourself and Mrs. Washington. You heard the same statements I did. He circumvented the act for the gradual abolition of slavery. He made it crystal clear to his secretary he wanted whichever enslaved persons Martha chose to be sent back to Mount Vernon under pretense, a pretense that would be believed by Oni and Austin and Hercules and any others that were sent back, and something the public believed as well. 
It was all about appearances and money. He called out that most of the enslaved staff at Pennsylvania were dower slaves. They were owned by Martha Washington because of her late husband. And if they were freed or they escaped, he would have to pay restitution to Martha's first husband's estate. Take a minute and let that shit sink in. So that was Oni's life in Philadelphia. She attended Martha Washington, not just inside the president's residence, but she traveled behind Martha's carriage in the city. She attended her in public. Author Erica Armstrong Dunbar talks about what these outings might have been like for Oni in her book, Never Caught. Dunbar said Oni may have felt proud to be attending the president's wife instead of working the fields back at Mount Vernon. That may have been a sentiment conveyed to her by the Washingtons, like, see how lucky you are to have nice clothes and live in a beautiful home and care for Mrs. Washington. Oni was cared for. She was provided food and a place to sleep. She may have considered herself protected, but she didn't know any other life than that as an enslaved person. The Washingtons arrived in Philadelphia in November 1790. Washington wrote that letter to his secretary in April 1791, just weeks away from the six-month residency stipulation in the act for the gradual abolition of slavery. Oni's older brother, Austin, had already passed six consecutive months of residency in Pennsylvania because he arrived in Philly in October. So the Washingtons had to get Austin out of Pennsylvania as soon as possible to prevent him from finding out about the law that would have given him his freedom. And they had to make his departure plausible. Martha Washington, get this, sent a letter to family at Mount Vernon claiming as hard as it would be for the household to manage without Austin, she promised his family back at the plantation he would be allowed to visit. And she wanted to honor that promise. The promise, my friends, was bullshit. It was the pretense Washington spoke about in his letter to Tobias Lear. Austin would have been happy to visit his wife and his children. And to their peers, the Washingtons looked like wonderful people. Yes, they kept slaves, but see how kindly they treated them. Aren't they benevolent? They fabricated reasons to send enslaved staff out and back into Pennsylvania to avoid freeing them. And they did this for years. That first year, the Washingtons bumped right up against the six-month deadline, which left them no time to get everyone back to Mount Vernon. But technically, they didn't have to go to Virginia. They just had to get out of Pennsylvania. For Oni Judge and Christopher Shields, who was an enslaved man in the Washington household, Martha took them on a day trip to New Jersey. They had a short ferry ride across the Delaware River, and that ended their six consecutive months of residency. Now, that left Hercules their cook. He was in his early 30s when the Washingtons moved to Philadelphia. He had a chosen wife and two daughters back at Mount Vernon. His son, Richmond, had traveled with him in the Washingtons to Philadelphia. Hercules was well-known in the black community of Philadelphia. I read in the book Never Caught that Hercules was allowed to earn money. Because he was the cook, the Washingtons let him sell leftovers from their kitchens, and he had a fondness for the latest fashions. He was easily recognizable with his colorful collars and his big personality. Hercules had many connections among the free black men and women in the city, and it's likely through those connections, Hercules learned about the act for the gradual abolition of slavery. When Washington asked Hercules to go back to Mount Vernon in April of 1791, he knew what Washington was doing. And he had ugh, an impossible choice to make. What do you do? 
Do you fight for your freedom or do you fight for your family? Because if he took his freedom, then he'd have lost his family back at Mount Vernon. So he stayed. And when Hercules was questioned about the act, he told Tobias Lear he knew all about it, but he had no intention of leaving the Washingtons. He enjoyed being their cook. They took good care of him. They took good care of his children. They even let him earn money. Why would he ever leave? Hercules had to convince them he wasn't going to flee. Pennsylvania's Gradual Abolition Act, the act for the immediate abolition of slavery in Massachusetts, other states in New England abolishing slavery in the late 1700s, there were so many changing views. The ever-growing population of Pennsylvania's free black men and women, all of this had to have been a constant consideration for Washington. And sadly, his consideration didn't lean towards freedom, but punishment. In 1793, Washington approved the Fugitive Slave Act. Even though the Constitution had a clause in it about slavery, which roughly read, no person held to service or labor would be released from bondage in the event they escaped to a free state, the southern states were still concerned that they wouldn't be able to recapture enslaved persons who escaped into the North. The Fugitive Slave Act specifically addressed people who helped enslaved persons escape. According to History.com, the act decreed that owners of enslaved persons and their agents, so anybody working on their behalf, had the right to search for escapees within free states. If a runaway was captured, the owner or agent could bring that runaway before a judge who reviewed evidence. Yeah, I put quotes around the word evidence. It proved whether or not the person captured was their property. And if ownership was proven the enslaved person was taken into custody and returned to their home state. If you've seen the movie 12 Years a Slave or know the story of Solomon Northup, the Fugitive Slave Act was used in defense of selling Solomon into slavery. Free black men and women in the northern states were sometimes kidnapped by bounty hunters who then made money selling them in the south. The Washington household ran on these cycles of getting the staff of enslaved persons out of Pennsylvania a few times a year. On one of his trips back to Mount Vernon, Oni's brother Austin suffered a horrible accident. He was crossing a river in Maryland, and he died as a result of his injuries in late 1794. Barely a month later, in January 1795, Oni's mother Betty died. She had younger siblings, but she barely knew them. Betty and Austin were her family, and they were gone. The following year, Oni received one more blow. In spring of 1796, Martha Washington's granddaughter, Eliza, had fallen in love. The Washingtons weren't fans of her intended. He was a British citizen twice Eliza's age, but they agreed to the marriage. Martha, though, was nervous, and she wanted to ensure Eliza would be looked after. She was only 19, and who better to care for Eliza than Oni Judge, the girl who spent almost 13 years as Martha's personal attendant. As a child, Eliza was mean. As a young woman, she was described as unkind and prone to emotional outbursts. Oni spent so much time at Martha Washington's side, not merely caring for her wardrobe and her home, but watching Martha conduct herself in public and in private. Oni was a trusted servant. Martha was comforted at the thought of Oni moving into Eliza's house as her personal attendant, and so she decided to make a gift of Oni. She would give Oni to Eliza as a wedding present, as if she were a set of silver or antique lace. 
And that was too much for Oni Judge. On Saturday, May 21st, 1796, after five years in Philadelphia and a lifetime of servitude, Ona Maria Judge walked out of the house on the corner of 6th and Market Streets, and she never looked back. Oni gave us a description in her own words of how she escaped. In an interview in 1845 with Reverend T.H. Adams for the Granite Freeman, a paper in Concord, New Hampshire, Oni Judge Staines told the Reverend, quote, Whilst they were packing up to go to Virginia, I was packing to go I didn't know where, for I knew that if I went back to Virginia, I should never get my liberty. I had friends among the colored people of Philadelphia. I had my things carried there beforehand and left Washington's house while they were eating dinner. Oni walked about six blocks to the Delaware Riverfront, where she was told to board a ship with a single sail. We know that ship was called the Nancy, and it was bound for Portsmouth, New Hampshire, steered by Captain John Bowles. About the captain, Oni said, quote, I never told his name until after he died, a few years since, lest they should punish him for bringing me away. Imagine her fear, boarding a ship in the hopes she'd be perceived as a free black woman of Philadelphia. Oni may not have been as well-known as Hercules, but she was the personal attendant of Martha Washington. She was seen around town with Martha for years. Guests at the Washington's house would have seen Oni judge. She had occasions to leave the house on her own during the time she lived in Philadelphia running errands, but this was different. She didn't just walk towards freedom. She left the home of the most famous family in the country. Can't even imagine the level of courage that took. Two days after Oni fled the president's house in Philadelphia, just two days, Washington was already hunting for her. On May 23, 1796, Washington placed an ad in the Philadelphia Gazette. I'm going to read you that advertisement, and this is verbatim what was published in the paper in 1796. Absconded from the household of the President of the United States, on Saturday afternoon, Oni Judge, a light mulatto girl, much freckled, with very black eyes and bushy black hair. She is of middle stature but slender and delicately made, about 20 years of age. She has many changes of very good clothes of all sorts, but they are not sufficiently recollected to describe. As there was no suspicion of her going off, and it happened without the least provocation, it is not easy to conjecture whether she is gone or fully what her design is. But as she may attempt to escape by water, all masters of vessels and others are cautioned against receiving her on board, although she may and probably will endeavor to pass for a free woman, and it is said has wherewithal to pay her passage. Ten dollars will be paid to any person, white or black, who will bring her home if taken in the city, or on board any vessel in the harbor and a further reasonable sum if apprehended and brought home from a greater distance and in proportion to the distance. That one sentence, it is not easy to conjecture whether she is gone. The Washingtons thought Oni had to have been influenced by the free black men and women in Philadelphia. They figured she ran off with a man or was convinced to do so by some other outside influence. They could not imagine 
she wanted to leave on her own. Why? Because she wasn't beaten like other enslaved people? Because she worked in their home instead of on the farm? Oh, wait, wait. That's right. We read that she had lovely clothes. That should have been enough to keep her from running. Jesus, she had no freedom and was about to be given away to a mean, miserable girl as if she was a tea set. Oni wasn't only a familiar face around Philadelphia. Portsmouth was a much smaller town than the site of the federal seat in Philly. But within three months of living in constant fear of being discovered as she lived and worked within a community of free black men and women in New Hampshire, Oni Judge was recognized. Elizabeth Langdon was the daughter of a New Hampshire senator, and she was the childhood playmate of one of Martha's granddaughters. As you probably guess, they did not keep this discovery to themselves, and by September 1796, Washington knew where Oni was hiding. He knew where she was. He approved the Fugitive Slave Act. His next act was to enlist the help of countrymen that could get Oni back. He began with the Secretary of the Treasury, a man named Oliver Wolcott, because Washington felt Oni's escape wasn't only his problem, but as the president, it was also the government's problem. Enclosed is the name and description of the girl I mentioned to you last night. She's been the particular attendant on Mrs. Washington since she was 10 years old. It was handy and useful to her, being a perfect mistress of her needle. Whether she is stationary at Portsmouth or was there in passing only is uncertain. But it is the last we've heard of her, and I would thank you for writing to the collector of that port and him for his endeavors to recover and send her back. To seize and put her on board a vessel bound immediately to this place, or to Alexandria, which I should like better, seems to be the safest and least expensive. I am sorry to give you or anyone else trouble on such a trifling occasion, but the ingratitude of the girl, who was brought up and treated more like a child than a servant, and Mrs. Washington's desire to recover her, ought not to escape with impunity if it can be avoided. With great esteem and regard, I am always yours. Here is that pious attitude again. We are caring slave owners. We treated her like part of the family. Were your family members forced to work for you from sunup until sundown, doing whatever labors you chose? Not allowed to marry? Never given the opportunity for any sort of education? Were they beaten? Were they sent away from their family? As sometimes happened to the people enslaved by Washington. Washington and Wolcott relied on assistance from other prominent men in New Hampshire to address the matter of Oni Judge. What they didn't count on was some of these men had already turned against slavery. They'd freed the enslaved people in their households after the Revolutionary War. One of those men was Joseph Whipple. Now, his family served with Washington in the war. Whipple set up a meeting with Oni under the pretext of a job interview, but it didn't take long for him to let Oni know what was up. Washington knew where she was and wanted her back. And immediately she panicked, but he let her know he was not there to turn her over to a judge or to a slave catcher. He was there to help. Joseph Whipple asked Oni what she wanted to do, and Oni said she would rather die than return to a life of slavery. But Oni Judge was willing to go back to the Washingtons, whom she did say had always treated her with kindness, if they would grant her freedom upon their deaths. In her book, Never Caught, Erica Armstrong Dunbar wrote that George Washington went, and I quote, ballistic over this. He basically threatened Oni Judge. 
He said Mrs. Washington would forgive her if she returned. But if she didn't return, oh, the rest of her family could be at risk. He didn't come right out and threaten her family that was still living at Mount Vernon. But he more than insinuated Oni Judd's escape might have brought punishment to her family. He was unwilling to consider her request, and he told her that she would be brought back not to Philadelphia, but to Virginia for a lifetime of slavery at Mount Vernon. Oni wouldn't accept Washington's response. She refused to return to Philly or Mount Vernon, and she was able to continue living among the free black men and women in New Hampshire. Oni Judge married around the turn of the year in 1797. She and Jack Staines, a free black sailor, were able to marry legally and formally in New Hampshire. Their first child followed soon thereafter in 1798. In less than two years, Oni Judge went from being enslaved, not allowed to marry, make her own money, or really make any decisions for herself, to living as a free black woman who chose her husband, had a child, and made a home for her family but she wasn't actually free. She was considered a fugitive, and according to the Fugitive Slave Act passed by President Washington, at any time she could have been captured and returned, as could any of her children, since technically they were born to an enslaved woman and the property of Martha Washington and the estate of her first husband. Oni must have lived in constant fear and anxiety. She built a life for herself in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, first as a single woman, then with her husband and her children. So, of course, there were moments of joy, moments where maybe she let her guard down for a second. But other than that, every day, regardless of how her life looked, she was a runaway slave, and she was never considered free according to the law. George Washington never let go of his quest to capture Oni Judge Staines and return her to a life of slavery. Even after he stepped down as president and returned to Mount Vernon, Oni's escape was never far from his and Martha's thoughts. In August 1799, more than three years after Oni Judge fled Washington's home in Philadelphia, he devised a plan with the help of Senator Burwell Bassett from Virginia, who just happened to be Martha's nephew. Bassett traveled to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and soon after he set foot on land, he went straight to Oni's house. Now, it's believed her husband, Jack Staines, was away at sea at the time. It's likely Oni was home alone with her baby. Martha's nephew, Burl Bassett, spent time at Mount Vernon. He knew Oni. She may have recognized him the moment she opened the door. And if she did, she knew exactly why he was there. Bassett did what he could to try to convince Oni to return to the Washingtons. He even told her she would be free once they got to Mount Vernon. So if she was going to be free, why leave her home and family and her husband and the life she made for herself in New Hampshire? If she returned to Virginia, she would have resumed life as an enslaved woman. Her children would have grown up in slavery, and she knew it. It's been reported that Oni told Bassett, I am free now and choose to remain so. That was unacceptable to Bassett and to Washington. He was sent to New Hampshire with orders to bring Oni Judge Staines back to Virginia. Burwell Bassett planned to return to Oni's house the next day and take her, along with her daughter, by force. But in his efforts to secure locals to help him capture Oni, word of his plan got out. 
Oni hired a horse and carriage that took her and her baby to a farm a few miles away, where a free black family hid them until Bassett left New Hampshire. George Washington died four months later in December 1799. If you think that ended Oni's constant fear of capture, you'd be wrong. Remember, Oni was the daughter of an enslaved woman owned by Martha Washington's first husband, which made Oni and any of her children the property of Martha. Oni may have lived as a free woman until her death in 1848, but she wasn't free according to the law, and her life was anything but easy. She and Jack struggled, as did many free black men and women, to find enough work or make enough money to provide for their families. When her husband died in 1803, Oni was barely 30 years old with three young children. She returned to that farm that protected her years before, when Washington's nephew tried to forcibly return her to Virginia. But even there, with multiple adults working, caring for the farm, caring for each other's children, there was never enough of anything. There wasn't enough food or money. Once Oni's daughters were teenagers, they left to live at a neighboring farm where they worked to earn their room and board. Her son, although a little younger, left to be a sailor like his father. Oni outlived her husband and her three children. Her life in New Hampshire was not easy. It was filled with hardships and constant fear of capture. Oni Judge Staines was interviewed in 1845 by a local reverend. Reverend Adams asked Oni if she was sorry she left Washington. In his words, he thought she labored so much since than before, meaning once she fled Washington's house. And Oni told him, no, I am free and have, I trust, been made a child of God by the means. George Washington's will declared his enslaved persons, which by 1799 were about 120 people, were to be freed upon the death of his wife. He made provisions for most of the enslaved people at Mount Vernon so they would be cared for after they were freed. Young people at Mount Vernon weren't entirely free, though, after Martha's death. Washington required they work at his plantation until 25 years old. But he did ensure they learn how to read and write before they left Mount Vernon. Martha was completely unsettled by this arrangement. She was paranoid Washington's enslaved people would see her is the only thing standing between them and freedom. So Martha had his will amended and freed all of George Washington's enslaved people in January 1801. I didn't learn about Oni Judge until I was an adult. The history I learned in school about George Washington did not include that he was a slave owner, that he bought and sold human beings. It was a whitewashed version of history that only focused on his military career and his role as president. Oni Judge's story deserves to be told, as do the stories of every man, woman, and child who was enslaved. But not all of their stories can be told because so many of their histories were erased. We have Oni's history, and we have the history of her owners, George and Martha Washington. Both histories are true. George Washington was the general and commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. He was the first president of the United States, and he enslaved people. I've mentioned a number of research sources throughout this episode, and I'd like to again highlight two books, Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave Ona Judge by Erica Armstrong Dunbar, and They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South by Stephanie Jones Rogers. 
All research sources are available in the episode notes. Voice acting for this episode was provided by voice actor, musician, and producer David Tuttle in the role of George Washington. Twisted Philly is researched, hosted, and produced entirely by me, Dina Marie, and available bi-weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on TikTok and Instagram at Twisted Philly to see many of the locations and histories I discuss in the show. Thank <laughs> you.